shows that make you laugh, shows that make you think, music that moves you. It could only be one place. Universal Broadcasting Network. Tune in at ubnradio.com. Animal Magnetism. Exploring animal care for creatures great and small. Conservation and preservation in today's world. Find out what a single voice can do to make a difference in the lives of animals. Animal Magnetism with Carolyn Hennessy starts right now on UBN Radio. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. As Carol Channing says, <laughs> there's... No, there's no better cure for anything than applause on center stage. So there you go. So welcome once again. I love, I love that intro, by the way, although I am not a single voice. I am, however, uh, the main voice today and your host, Carolyn Hennessy. Welcome to Animal Magnetism. And uh, I want to give a shout out to my producer, Andrea Compton, who is not with us today, as she normally is, producer and co-host. Uh, but we are uh, shouting out to her and sending her lots and lots of love and uh, knowing that she will come back soon. However... I am joined today by the man that I refer to as the Alpha and the Omega, uh, Dr. Gray Stafford, my personal animal mentor. Thank you so much for calling in from Arizona. Well, good morning. It's great to be here. It's always a good day with Dr. Gray. And our special guest today is Barbara Taylor. Would that be Dr. Barbara Taylor? It is, and thank you very much for having me on your show. Carol. I can't. I will. We have much, much to discuss. Barbara Taylor of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. You, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about what they do, and but you, I believe, are work on a, in a suborganization of NOAA. That's right. I work for the National Marine Fisheries Service, and here our scientific lab in, in San Diego, California, is called the Southwest Fisheries Science Center. Fantastic. What's, let's talk a little bit about NOAA for my listeners, about the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and what they do, what they cover. Well, they cover a lot of things, as, as the name would imply, the oceans and the atmosphere. So the weather, <laughs> okay. the weather service is part of NOAA, um, and the fishery service is part of NOAA. And I belong to a, a special branch of that that works specifically on protected species um, at a science center. And so we have several science centers in different parts of the country. And uh, I have the privilege of work, working at uh, a a really fantastic uh, center right on the campus of, of Scripps in, in uh, San Diego. Fantastic. And you are, as, as you said, dedicated to uh, endangered species. This, the, your, your particular uh, work area is, is related to endangered species, and one, one, one in particular that we are here to discuss today. Yes, that's right. I, I, my, my day job is I actually run the Marine Mammal Genetics Program, and we do lots of exciting work. We're still finding lots of new species of, of whales and dolphins and porpoises. Um, but I also have been interested from a very young age in helping to save endangered species, and I've been working on this little animal we're going to talk about today, vaquitas, for the last 25 years. It, that 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 is that is amazing because the plight of the vaquita, right, Gray, has just really come come, come to the fore. Well, it has, and it's it, what's striking to me is the precipitous drop in population numbers over the last several years, despite 
several attempts, several uh, approaches that I, I know Barbara will tell us about. Um, it's just it it is a it is certainly a warning for all those other species in the ocean um, that may someday find themselves in a similar situation. So, I think it makes sense, Barbara, if you could tell us a little bit about the vaquita, where it's from, what it does, and and why it finds itself in such a uniquely bad situation. Thank you. Well, the vaquita is one of seven species of porpoises, and uh, for your listeners, porpoises sort of look like tiny versions of killer whales. They don't have a beak like a dolphin, so they have sort of a, a blunter face. I think they're really stunning little animals, but people don't know about them as much because they're typically shy. Um, they are found in singles and pairs. They don't come over and ride the bows of boats, so they get a lot less attention than their show, showier, larger cousins. And the vaquitas, I think, of all the porpoises, the most lovely. It has a, a beautiful paint job. I mean, it basically has sort of goth makeup. It has black lipstick and, and black around its eyes. Um, and it's a very, as porpoises go, a pretty slender porpoise because it's the only porpoise that's actually found in really warm waters. Most porpoises uh, make their living in really productive uh, northern waters. And we have this real special animal um, that lives next to one of the hottest deserts in the world um, and in a very special environment that is just as productive because of the huge tides that sweep through this part of Mexico, the northern Gulf of California. And so it's found in this really tiny area and we think, looking at its genetics and all of the evidence that we can bring to bear on it, that it's a naturally rare species. And so those two things combined um, make it a very vulnerable uh, to human impact. And of course, if you live in really productive areas, um, there are going to be areas that fishermen want to use for themselves for the productivity for the fish. So we have this, you know, uh, set of things that make it very difficult um, for the government of Mexico to deal with uh, its largest endemic mammal uh, being naturally rare, um, easily accessed by small type fishing uh, activities and, you know, a species that has a tiny distribution and there probably never were more than several thousand of them. Really? So it makes it very difficult for this species right to begin with. Um, and uh, it was only described as science um, in 1958, a little over 50 years ago. Oh. Barbara, I, I, there's, a, there's a statistic here that the vaquita population, which is now, we guess, at roughly 30, maybe below 30, right about now. But the vaquita population has plummeted by 90% since 2010, so that's seven years ago, and fewer than 30 are estimated to be, le to be left. The steep decline has largely been fueled by poaching of the equally endangered totoaba fish, which is valued for its swim bladder. But let me ask you a question. Has, and, and, and the totoaba fish, which is harvested in the Gulf of Mexico and then killed, and then the swim bladder, the, this little tiny part of this totoaba fish, I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly, is then sent to where it's, uh, where it's a delicacy in China, as so many odd things are. Um, and and, and just, a, just a few millimeters of this, of this swim bladder fetches high, high prices, which is why this fish is being so overfished and is now critically endangered, and the, the vaquita are 
their collateral damage, they are uh, caught in the gill nets. But is this 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 yen, if you will, no pun intended, in China for this swim bladder, has that sort of increased in the last seven years? Is that why the fishing of the Totoaba fish is has go, has just become rampant? Well, it's a very interesting story, the tangled fate of Totoabas, which you pronounce perfectly, and vaquitas. Um, they actually became endangered together. So the Totoaba is a huge fish. Um, it's uh, like NFL linebacker-sized fish. And it comes up in the shallow waters of the northern Gulf, where the vaquitas live, um, to spawn when they're big adults. And it's the reason why the fishing villages are there to begin with. Um, and the most valuable thing about this big fish, which I hear has very tasty meat, um, is actually, as you mentioned, the swim bladder, um, which is an organ that's used to regulate buoyancy. And not many people uh, realize that there has been and is uh, a very long-standing uh, relationship between Mexico and China. I mean, it's, it sort of always surprises people, I think, to go to, you know, towns that are near where the vaquitas and totuabas live and see lots of Chinese restaurants. But in fact, there's always been a large Chinese population, and it was their fish, the bahaba, um, that really is the beginning of this story because they were the ones that were valued for their swim bladder, that the belief is that the, the putting the, the, this sort of uh, swim bladder into soups will make your skin look more youthful. Hmm. And so they basically uh, almost uh, fished the bahaba to extinction. And the word totuaba is a corruption of the word bahaba. And so that, that was a replacement for their fish that did exactly the same thing in China, in the, in the Yangtze and the Yellow River. And they basically wiped out the adult population in Mexico in the mid-1970s, early 1980s. There was still some fishing going on um, into the 1990s. And... It was in dumps for Totoaba that vaquitas were actually discovered. So they've had this collateral damage effect, but because the adults basically uh, went away, they were all fished out, um, and the juveniles were way down in the central gulf where they were safe, um, the Totoaba problem sort of went away for vaquitas. Um, and they were the first fish that was ever listed on the Convention for the International Trade of Endangered Species, and they still are. Um, and they are listed on the Mexican Endangered Species uh, Act. So uh, they are still uh, listed as endangered, but in about the early 2000s, mid-2000s, like 2010, we started getting consistent reports from the fishermen that these big totuabas were showing up to spawn in the northern waters again. And so ironically, as we're seeing one species recover, um, the demand hadn't gone away. And in fact, there was a lot more money in China in 2010 than there was in uh, 1970. Um, and 
of course, there's a big illegal wildlife uh, trade in China. And so it just became overnight sort of the cocaine of the sea and drove this very rapidly, drove a, a really uh, amazing increase to where it became the most important fishery in the northern Gulf within a few years. So basically, it's the fish's fault for finding, for, for not staying where they were. They, it's, 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 it's their fault. It's their fault. I'm, I'm blaming it all. I'm blaming it all on the, on the Totoaba because if they had just stayed where they were, they would have been fine. I, I, I am astonished at it. I know this is a, this is a horrible generality. It truly is. But, but, but generalities, I think have some kernel in truth that China, which is, which is is one one of the oldest civilizations just seems to have not a care about just wiping clinging to ancient, illogical, unproven, untrue rituals, these, untru- these, 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 these delicacies that do nothing, shark fin soup, and, and they could not care less about destroying the planet. I mean, they just, it's just, and I'm sure, again, huge generality, and I'm sure there are many, hopefully the next generation coming up will have a reverse position, but it's astonishing to me. It's just Crazy! I hear things like this. It'll make your skin okay, and and I and I just sort of hang my head and I think, how do you, how do you how do you turn an entire nation around? And and again, when we do a lot of stuff here, that is that is backwards and batshit crazy. Pardon my language, but but uh, you know you hear you hear about these things and you just sort of shake your head. Okay, so now we have determined that that the vaquita are less than 30 and now everyone is very nervous and and things are happening now it's being brought to the public attention things are happening so when last we spoke when gray took a pie in the face which i was <laughs> which i which i was going to do today gray i know but i'm not i know i know you didn't we'll, know we'll get you, we'll get you we'll find you, that yes, pie I, will, I will i will i will i will take a pie in the face for the vaquita i, I promise but when last we spoke, like for instance, six months ago, there was a plan in place, a million-dollar plan, roughly, to take them out of the Gulf of Mexico because where they are, this warm water, is, is that curve, ladies and gentlemen who don't have a map, is that curve from Mexico around to, uh, I guess, what, New Mexico? No, uh, Texas? To, to Baja. Yes, to, yes, to yeah, Baja. To, to Baja. Okay, right, right up in that little tiny curve. And there was a there was there was a program in place to take them out and put them somewhere, put them somewhere safe. But now, and 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 money was being donated for that, and that money I think is probably still in an account somewhere safe. But now there's been this, and what is it? N O M M O U, memorandum of understanding. There's a, there's a new memorandum of understanding. I believe that's what it's called. An MOU between three entities, and this was just signed. If I'm if I'm correct, Barbara, uh, just a, a few weeks ago. Just a few days ago. Uh, just a few days ago. It is between the United Mexican States, Mexico, the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation, and the Carlos Slim Foundation. So, let's talk about this MOU because I have some thoughts on it. But I'd love to hear your. You were there, Barbara, at the signing. Yes, I had the great privilege of, of being there for this, what we hope is a, a huge day for vaquitas. Um, and I have to say that it's always been a, 
a two-pronged approach. I've been a member of the recovery team since its inception 20 years ago, and um, we have always uh, recommended that there be a complete ban of gill nets um, that's effectively enforced throughout the range of vaquitas. And well, Barbara, let me, this, let, me, let me stop you just for, for one second. There's been a recovery uh, initiative program and a, in, in place for 20 years? That's right. There has been an international team that has been advising the government of Mexico for 20 years, and, and most of our recommendations have remained the same over that 20-year period. And uh, it's only, I think, very recently since the extinction of the uh, Chinese uh, river dolphin, Yangtze river dolphin, um, that you know, now Mexico has the most endangered marine mammal on the planet, um, and they've taken notice. And they've, uh, you know, I was part of the presidential commission um, on for the recovery of Akita in Mexico City, and uh, so they've they've been taking some very um, strong measures and uh, listening to the recovery team and the scientists. Um, but Finally. this battle. Finally, fi- finally, they've been listening to you. I mean, I mean, yes, we can kind of throw our heads back and laugh, and it's true. But it's it's been a twenty year, obviously, uphill battle, and it's only when the species is about to be decimated that they that they take notice. Be- which is just it's that, that that's amazing to me. Um, tell me what some of these recommendations that you have been recommending for for 20 years are now are now you, you, we talk about gill nets let's let, what is what is a gill net for my listeners so a gill net is a, a net that's placed in the sea and it and it has little sort of diamond shaped openings that are the size of the typically the size of the fish that they're trying to target um, and so the ones for Totuaba, because Totuaba and Vaquita are about the same size, are the most deadly for Vaquita because they can fit their heads right into the same hole that a Totuaba would. Oh. But unfortunately, there was a study that was done uh, looking at uh, Vaquita deaths in all kinds of gill nets. And basically everything in the northern Gulf, including shrimp, um, 80% of which is uh, if exported to the United States is caught with gill nets. And they found that vaquitas died in every single type of gill net. Um, so um, there, there, there's lots of blame to go around. And, and that's been happening for a long time. And I have to say that uh, it is the largest threat to marine mammals in the world. There are hundreds of thousands of marine mammals that die every year all over the world, and including in rivers um, that are killed by gill nets. And we have not a single positive example of switching over a small type fishery um, to gear that doesn't kill all of the top predators. So it's not just uh, vaquitas, it's sharks, it's whales, it's dolphins, it's sea turtles. It's not a targeted gear. It's a very destructive gear. Okay, wait, wait. But it's Super efficient and cheap. Right, gear. right, right. And I just, I just want to paint a picture for my listeners of exactly what a gill net looks like. It's not a net that you know is 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 sort of uh, you know 
like like a like a like a like a large ball where you sort of haul in the fish. It's dropped straight down like a curtain, and that- and and the fish swim into it, and then it is raised and and it's basically you know the fish's head is stuck in it. So it's like there's this wall of fish that are just th- thrashing about in this in this in this net. And then it's and then it's hauled up and everything is harvested. Um, but you said something very interesting. You said there is not a single positive example of switching of maybe I maybe I didn't hear this correctly, of switching a fishery from a gillnet to other types of gear. You said that there wasn't a positive example of like losing the gillnet and and going and going to some other type of of, of fishing. So there have been cases where gillnets are prohibited from being in certain areas. Mm -hmm. And actually, the United States has many good examples. um, And including, um, we have harbor porpoise that are swimming under the Golden Gate Bridge in California today because gillnets were um, within the range of uh, harbor porpoise were banned. But these, those fisheries um, where we've had these uh, potentially positive results were relatively large type fisheries, oh, okay. industrial fisheries. So we have a Marine Mammal Protection Act and we have regulations that control. And, and, and so there still are gillnet fisheries in the United States. But what I'm talking about here is there's small type fisheries. Right. So these are small fishing boats they you know carry one to three people they're all over the world you know along the coast it's it's mom and pop kind of fishery it's not artisanal because they're actually selling the fish for a profit but they're really a small type fishery and it's a very efficient um, means for them to catch fish because it's passive so you go out you put out the, the net in the water and you let it soak there for, you know, as little as eight hours or as much as uh, 24 hours. And then you go pull it up again and you take everything that's in there, which is, you know, I mean, everything that runs into the net dies. And so, but they haven't used any gasoline. I mean, it's, it's a very cheap, the nets are cheap. They don't have to use gas. So if you're a small type fishery, it's really difficult to convert you over because the, the fishermen know that it works for them. Um, and it's, it's from their perspective, it's an efficient kind of gear. Yeah. So, so Barbara, can we, can we recap a little bit before we get into the details of what happened this past week and the, the signing of this MOU, can we just recap a little bit of some of the, the steps that have been taken and, and why this bold plan for collecting some of the animals was put forth and, and where, that, is, where that, that plan stands uh, for this year. And then we can jump into the MOU and the Leo DiCaprio connection. Sure. Yeah. Makitas, as long as we have been able to keep track of them, have been declining. So we've done three big surveys. In 1997, we went out and there were about 600 of them. Uh, in 2008, we went out again, and they declined to only 250. And that was had nothing to do with Totoaba. That had to do with regular legal gill netting, and most of it, again, being shrimp that was being imported to the United States. And, and then starting probably about 2011, um, this Totoaba fishery took off. Um, 
And we had fortunately um, recognized that one of the most important things that conservation scientists can do um, is to keep their eye on the ball. We didn't do that with uh, Baiji, with the Yangtze River Dolphin. Um, and we went out, I was part of the expedition that tried to find the last of the Baiji and take them into captivity, and they were extinct. Um, so, you know, when I came back, Lorenzo Rojas Bracho, my colleague in Mexico, and, and I sat down and said, we have got to come up with a way that we can monitor what's going on with the Bikita every single year. And so we developed this acoustic monitoring that allows us to uh, basically get 3,000 days worth of acoustic data every single year. Wow. Um, these animals are out there echolocating like bats to find their food. And they're sort of like the little hummingbirds of the sea. They have a really high metabolism. So they echolocate all the time and allows us to put this grid of sensors out there and leave them out there for months at a time, pick them up and be able to, to basically gauge whether there's more or fewer vaquitas. So it was that system that really uh, picked up that this uh, Totoaba fishery, which of, of course is illegal and so it's hidden, was having a devastating effect on vaquitas. And so we were able to come back to the presidential commission and present to them. At the time, um, we thought that they had gone from declining at about 8% per year to declining at about 20% per year. Now we know that they actually were declining at 34% per year since that uh, uh, Totoaba uh, market resurged. And so we went from about you know, 250 to 2015, we went out and did another big survey and there were only 60 left. Um, and then that actually occurred at the time when the president of Mexico came to the little fishing village of San Felipe and announced this plan by the government of Mexico to save vaquitas. And it involved uh, a, a gillnet ban compensating the fishermen not to fish to the tune of uh, $32 million a year, uh, putting the Navy in charge of enforcement and uh, accelerating research into developing alternative gear. So that the government of Mexico has spent over $100 million since this problem cropped up. Um, so, you know, you can't say that, that, you know, I can't, I don't know of any government who has, you know, responded so rapidly and yet, um, we went out again with the acoustic monitoring, and we found that after the Gilnet uh, project was put in place, um, we lost another half. We went from 60 to 30 in a year. And the Sea Shepherd has been out there doing this amazing job. They have a, a, an operation called Operation Milagro. They've done it for three years. And they have a memorandum of understanding with the Mexican Navy um, to uh, help them uh, with the, you know, basically this uh, criminal operation on Totuaba. And they have pulled out amazing numbers of nets. So just in the last two years, they've pulled out 300 of these, you know, horrible uh, death-dealing Totoaba nets um, and, you know, hundreds of dead Totoaba. They have been a uh, part of the reason that we know that a bunch of vaquitas have died. In fact, we have, um, in the last uh, 
two years, we know of, uh, uh, actually have the bodies of like 12 vaquitas. And the ones that we can actually examine, uh, do full necropsies on, have all died in gill nets. Okay, so 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 basically, the government has spent over a hundred million dollars, thirty-two million to compensate the fishermen, banning the nets. The na- the Mexican Navy is involved, and and still we lost half of them because obviously, these small mom and pop fisheries are still using, even though they're being paid not to fish, they're saying screw you. And they're they're going out and dropping gill nets, illegal gill nets. That's what's happening. Well, the, the recovery team, you know, basically, you know, we're scientists. So we looked at the evidence, and the evidence was that uh, despite all of these things that we were so optimistic about, the you know, the ban of gill nets, uh, the evidence was is that there were still nets out there, and the vaquitas were still declining basically at the same rate as they were before the gillnet ban. And that was what motivated the team to make the very hard decision that we had to move forward as quickly as possible to take as many vaquitas out of that, you know, toxic environment um, as we could, because otherwise we were going to lose them in the next year or two. And that still, by the way, is the plan. Um, And, and, as I, I started to say, it really is this two-pronged approach because unlike condors, you know, when they finally made the decision to take the last eight condors out of the wild, they could go out and do it relatively easily. Mm-hmm. Um, with vaquitas, uh, we are going to be learning as we go. Um, we don't know how they're going to respond to being handled. And so there's been this uh, team assembled um, that is called Vaquita CPR, uh, that is Vaquita Conservation uh, Protection and Recovery, um, that has been formed. It brings together a really concentrated team of 40 scientists from all over the world with expertise in uh, everything from doing what I do, which is finding them, um, you know, looking for them, because we obviously have to find them. Um, to catching them, to housing them, to the veterinary care. And each one of those steps is, is very uncertain. But we, the recovery team felt very strongly that unless we did that, um, we were going to lose the species in the next year or two. And, and even though I'm so excited about this new uh, wrinkle in the fabric, you know, of, of vaquita conservation, that we're going to have these foundations uh, coming in and working with the government of Mexico to make the ban permanent, um, you know, we still can't rely on that. We we would just, uh, you know, we've learned our lesson that, you know, y- you, you have to have the evidence that it's actually working, and we just can't afford to wait and see at this point. Of course and not. so no. we need to do both things. We know that we won't be able to catch every vaquita. We know that there will be, be vaquitas out there during the next Totrava season, which will start in, in December and run through next May. Um, and so we have to do everything we can to get those nets out. Um, and we have to do everything we can to protect as many vaquitas and take them into human care as we possibly can. You know, and I, 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 Carolyn, if I just interject there, this, this is an extraordinary situation. I mean, on all fronts, just 
from the, the, the number and types of organizations and professionals that are involved from Sea Shepherds to zoological parks, those are groups that not, don't typically get along with each other or see to eye to eye on a lot of things. And what's extraordinary is, um, you know, time is running out, but all avenues are on, on the table to try to prevent this extinction. And um, it, it really, I hope, will stand as a model for future species because I'm sure the vaquita is not the last of its kind to be in this, this dire situation. There are other species that we're going to face um, these kind of challenges. But what's truly unique here is that we're talking about a shy, elusive, this is not a bottlenose dolphin that might go check out a couple of snorkelers in the Gulf of Mexico. This is an animal that eludes discovery, if, if I'm correct. And so I have a question for you, Barbara. In all these years that you've studied this species and you've gone out to, to survey them and so forth, how many times have you seen a living specimen of a vaquita? And for how long? Great question. I, I would be a very unusual person there. I, I, I've seen hundreds of vaquitas because wow. I've been on every vaquita survey. Um, we uh, look for them with these enormous 25 power binoculars that allows us to see them before they can detect us. Um, so there's very few people in the world who've had the opportunities that I have to watch these animals. Um, but even so, you know, I've, I've never gotten closer to a live one than probably 100 meters. Yes. And, and wow. as you say, they, they move away from, uh, from vessel noise. Um, if you're just sitting quietly in a ponga, I mean, I've, I've talked to fishermen and my uh, colleagues that are doing the acoustic monitoring that are out in the water and they'll have the motor off and, you know, they're putting these sensors out everywhere, but of course, including the areas where there are the highest um, densities of vaquitas remaining. And they've had, you know, animals that just puff right around the boat and, you know, wow. you know, so, you know, they, they, they aren't, you know, if you're just sitting there, um, they just go about their business. Uh, but that said, um, it's a totally different thing trying to capture one and run a net around one. I, and so that's going to be a really, really difficult task. Okay. Okay. Barbara, let me, let's, let's just, let's try and find a date here because obviously you've seen hundreds of them. Has, has there been an attempt made to date to capture one or two or five and get it into a C pen? And if not, when is the date? Because there's a lot of talk about, T capturing them, putting them into human care, into a C-pen, and there's there's much discussion about that. But has the has there been an attempt made to date? And if not, when? So there has not been an attempt to date. Um, one of the important factors about capturing a vaquita is that you have to be ready to take care of it, to take care of you know one of the rarest animals on the planet, and so. It's, uh, it's a very complicated puzzle. And as, as Greg correctly pointed out, you know, throughout my career, I've seen such an amazing group of scientists from so many walks of life that have been willing to drop everything to help out with the species. And now we have, you know, engineers. I mean, we have this whole much more complicated puzzle of, you know, we're going to be taking these precious animals into captivity and we have to be able to take care of them well. So we're going out there in October and we'll be out there in October and early November. Um, as we speak, they're already starting to 
uh, build the on-land housing that will be needed to give them good veterinary care. They're building the floating tuna pens. Um, the Navy Dolphins, which we haven't discussed yet, the Navy Dolphins are being trained. I mean, so there's all these things that have to happen incredibly quickly in a very complicated project um, in order to not only have a high chance of capturing them, but a high chance of being able to keep them for, you know, I have to tell you, I've been become a student of uh, species that have been saved, that have gone extinct in the wild and have been saved through captive Mm -hmm. efforts. And um, for a species like vaquitas, where we uh, know that they at most can have one offspring a year, um, they may only have one every two years. Um, we have to be, you know, thinking of this, we have to be in there for the long haul. We have to be in there willing to take care of this animal for decades. Of course. Of course. Um, and and it, would, and it would, would all have been so simple, and this all could have been avoided, this rush, 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 had the Mexican government listened to you 20 years ago, but thank God that they listened to you, you know, a couple of years ago. Let's talk about the Navy, the Navy dolphins and what, how the U.S. Navy is training their dolphins, yes, to help what corral what what's 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 happening with that so the mexican government um has as i mentioned been um listening very carefully to the recommendations of the recovery team and we a number of years ago started you know really you know talking about is it feasible? What can we learn about purposes that are, you know, what do we know about Vaquita? I mean, really getting down and talking the specifics and getting a plan B ready because plan A wasn't working. And uh, the government of Mexico uh, knew that we would need all the tools possible to be able to make this happen. And they had their Navy contact, contact the U.S. Navy and ask whether um, or not their dolphins could be useful in helping us capture vaquita, which we knew was gonna be a really difficult thing. It's not only difficult to see them, but to keep track of a, an animal that is uh, my size, five feet, 120 pounds. I mean, I, I'm the perfect vaquita size. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, they have this like little, you know, I mean, they've got a tall dorsal fin for being a porpoise, but it's still, you know, when you're looking at them and they're a mile away, it's a mighty small thing to be seeing out there in the ocean, especially when they're only in singles and pairs and they're not jumping around like dolphins. And so we know that it's really difficult to track these animals. So the plan is to go out um, using our, well, first we'll do the full acoustic monitoring thing. We'll narrow down sort of this is where they're spending their time. We'll focus our visual efforts on the areas where the animals are spending their time. And then once we see them, um, we're hoping that the Navy dolphins who have been being trained with harbor porpoises will be able to go out and basically just follow them around like puppy dogs. And they are way bigger and they're way easier to see. And they know that they're, they're trained to be seen. So they'll jump out of the water to let us know wow. where the animals are. And of course they don't have engines. So they can follow the vaquitas, track the vaquitas and allow us to position the net boats in the right place. So they're in the right place at the right time. And 
you know, we don't know if the Navy Dolphins are going to work or not. So obviously we have backups to, you know, be able to do the best we can with like three visual boats that'll allow us to have a, a better, better opportunity of tracking the animals. But if it works, you know, what a great thing, you know, one marine mammal helping save another. And, uh, you know, we hope that that, you know, by going out into the field with every tool that we can possibly conceive of, um, that we'll be able to make this work. So we're looking toward a, to, to an October, November, hopeful uh, capture of as many as, as, as we possibly can with, with all facilities in place ready to receive. That's right. Yep. October, and- November. And of course, we'll, I mean, a lot of the preparatory work, you know, building the, the tuna sea pens, which will be located right out in the vaquita habitat so that we don't have to move the animals very far and can sort of uh, gently uh, introduce them into these new conditions. And, you know, every step of the way, there will have to be evaluation by porpoise veterinarians um, as to how the animals are responding and whether it's really feasible uh, to keep these animals in captivity. We're hopeful, of course. But, um, you know, it's uh, well, a great deal of uncertainty. Well, we have to be well, hopeful and- because we're the, we're, the last, we're the last hope for this. We, humans who have so decimated, are now the last hope for this animal. And, and, and Carolyn, you know, we humans also are making this possible because six months ago, the funding for all of this was, was in question, right, Barbara? I mean, it, you talk about the pace of putting together a scientific project like this, but there was also a rapid pace of collecting the seed money necessary to, to even get us to this point, never mind the, the decades of care that will will follow if, if it's successful. But um, so there is hope and there is, there, I think, um, where is the funding at at this point? Are you satisfied that we've made enough progress in that area to, to move forward? Yes, well, the, the National Marine Mammal Foundation folks, as I mentioned earlier, this is a, a really complicated puzzle now with uh, lots of different pieces. And um, the National Marine Mammal Foundation has been leading this uh, group of 40 scientists and Uh, They have their own fundraising uh, group, which was, you know, it was the reason that we weren't out there in May. It was because we didn't have enough money to do it in May. Um, And so, you know, that that in itself is a, you know, a huge effort. And the AZA, the Association for Zoos and Aquariums, um, really came through. And that's just been tremendous. And the government of Mexico came through. So, uh, between the two now, we have over $4 million, um, which is what they estimated it would take for the first year. Um, so, of course, first year is going to be a very expensive year. Uh, but nevertheless, um, you know, that is an, uh, you know, an effort that takes the skills of many um, that are quite different from, you know, what we've had to, to deal with in the past. And of course, we have to have engineers, you know, that are engineering how to, you know, build a, uh, a, a sea pen that is, you know, accessible from land, but protected from the winter storm. So there's lots of these different elements that had to come together. And, um, you know, there's a huge team of people that have made all of those pieces happen. Let's, let's talk about this memorandum of understanding, this MOU between the Mexico, the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation, and the Carlos Slim Foundation. Carlos Slim, widely known as the, mo- as, as the wealthiest man in Mexico. What is this going to do? Because as, as read, 
it's it, I, I I appreciate that there's a there's now a, a collective there's an understanding between all of these groups but so far just in reading it it's an understanding that they are willing to research they're willing to put you know research putting a plan in place that does but I'm unless I'm reading it incorrectly I'm not seeing a lot of action I'm not seeing a lot of action out of this so so why are we excited about this memorandum of understanding well I'm very excited about this memorandum of understanding for a couple of reasons so there are some timelines that are put on there Um, there Mm -hmm. is and you're right you're very perceptive that the devil's in the details. And, you know, I mean, it just, you know, we learned that with the last um, two-year temporary ban, um, that there were a lot of things about that ban that made it so that it didn't work. And we have to do better this time. And the language in the MOU is uh, vague on the point. I mean, it says making a permanent ban of gillnets, but it doesn't say making a permanent ban of not only use, but possession of gill nets on land and at sea. Right. So right now um, you could go into San Felipe and find gill nets in people's back, totoaba nets in people's backyards, and they have no power to do anything about it because the net itself isn't illegal. Okay. And so I think that having you know the power of Carlos Slim and the DiCaprio Foundation saying, we're only going to do our part of the bargain if we see this these conditions met um, could be a real game changer in terms of, of getting rapid, uh, suitably rapid um, regulations put in place. But those regulations still have to be put in place. So they, they it actually, you know, the, the laws have to be written, they have to be put in place, and they have to be enforced. And so all of those things are in there. And so there are some critical steps that will happen, uh, according to the MOU, in the next 30 days, that they'll form an advisory committee, and they'll start to really flesh out all of these really critical details. Um, so and, basically, uh, it's, in, it's incumbent now upon the Mexican government to write the laws, create the initiatives, and really come down hard on on enforcing this ban of gillnets it's it's basically up to them now within the next 30 days i would say because there listen this the legal nature of this mou the present mou is not intended to create legally binding obligations or rights for participants in the field of international law and is only a See, this is this is what drives me crazy it's only a manifestation of willingness to cooperate in the areas and modalities established come on Come on. I mean, what? So they're only going to participate if the Mexican government now establishes laws uh, 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 with, regard to, with regard to having gillnets and, and, uh, in these mom-and-pop fisheries. So, okay, it's, we're, now, we're now waiting for the Mexican government. Is that, is that correct? I, I think it's going to be a collaborative uh, next step. Um, by that will be, I think, controlled a lot by this advisory committee. And we don't know who's going to be on the committee. But, you know, one of the things that conservation uh, has to face constantly uh, is that uh, 
you need political will. You need a whole bunch of different ingredients to make the recipe work. But one of them is political will. And this administration in Mexico, I think, has the political will. Um, we have no idea what the next administration will be like. And I think it's one of the hopeful things, um, and we'll learn as we go, um, but if you have these powerful foundations um, that really, especially like the Slim Foundation, really understands how things work in Mexico, um, they last longer than political administration. And well, look, if their commitment is to, you know, we fulfill our part of the bargain, which is basically converting uh, the economies of those villages so that uh, they are are diversified and are not harming vaquitas and are having a healthy ecosystem in the northern Gulf. If, if they're holding the government's feet to the fire before they fulfill that commitment, um, you know, I can't see how that can be a negative thing. Excellent. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, these, oh, and, and, these could also the, be tourist destinations. These these could be, you know, travel destination spots. In other words, to maybe, uh, if, if the vaquita pens are close enough to sort of see the vaquita, it, it could, it could, they could be turned from fishing into, into possible tourism. Maybe. Maybe, depending well, on where those pens are. And, and, and the, the, the nature of the vaquita has, has lent itself uh, – to some of this problem because it, it doesn't have good PR. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have mm -hmm. a, a voice uh, like Leo DiCaprio's that can shed light on the situation in ways that that none of us individually can. And 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 that too is a component of this this problem because as you know as as you've probably experienced many times, Barbara, most people have never heard of this animal. Uh, maybe in the last year or so because of pie contests or pie you know and efforts for funding. But largely, it is because of its elusive nature and its remote location that I would say most Americans have never heard of this species. So in, in that vein, let me ask you a quick question. It's kind of more philosophical because I know we're, we're, we're heading towards the end of the show. My question for you, Barbara, is this is a small species. You, you said at the top of the show that it probably never numbered more than a few thousand at its, at its peak. So its, its role in that ecosystem one could argue how important that role is and, and what what its absence to that ecosystem would mean. But why should we care about the vaquita, given the fact that it is so low in numbers, that it's, it's got a, such a small range historically? Um, why is this important? Excellent and question. So I personally believe that every animal who's evolved here on planet Earth has a right to be here as much as we do. And They've been in the Northern Gulf for three million years. So I, I think that's a pretty good reason in and of itself. But I think there's some other big reasons that vaquitas are really important. And that is that I really think this is a solvable problem. I think it, this can be the first win of getting sustainable fisheries um, and converting away from gill nets and as I mentioned earlier, uh, this is a really global problem. Um, and we have this opportunity because where I'm sitting right now is four and a half hours away from where vaquitas live. Um, there's a real opportunity to make this uh, a blue market uh, example where uh, communities in California and Arizona can you know, pay a conservation premium to, to have fisheries done right. 
and we can use it as a testing ground for um, really establishing transparency in seafood marketing so that, you know, the, the pongas that are allowed, the small type boats that are allowed to go out and fish are completely monitored so that if a chef here in San Diego who's supporting uh, conservation serves uh, uh, a dish up and it has a, a barcode, an edible rice barcode on it that people can take a picture of with their phone and <laughs> see, hey, this person caught this fish and they can feel really confident that, that, you know, I'm helping to solve this problem and it can really involve a consumer. And I think that can be a really positive example that we desperately need. Um, and the other reason I think it's really important for us to uh, use vaquitas uh, charm, um, and they are charming animals, and we'll get to see them even more, I think, I hope, um, in, the, in the coming year, um, is because I think people will care more about a charismatic megavertebrate um, than they will about uh, all the other species that are indiscriminately killed in those nets. They are, in a sense, the guardians uh, of the northern Gulf. Um, without them there, um, I think those communities will, uh, in, you know, in the interest of putting food on the table, um, they'll be destroying their own uh, ecosystem by taking out all the top predators um, as they continue to, to fish and fish very heavily um, in that area. And so I think even though vaquitas might not be uh, uh, missed in terms, I mean, and of course we have no way of knowing this, right. but you know, because there are so few of them, you know, the ecosystem might not change that much if vaquitas weren't there, but vaquitas are not the only ones that are being killed. I mean, it's, it's all, the large, um, all the large creatures, including totuabas, um, that are being taken out at the same time. And so they're sort of the, the guardians of the Gulf. This program. I love it. This it's program gives slow, me. It's a great line. Yeah, it is. The guardians of the Gulf. It, this program gives me, gives me a tremendous amount of hope. Now, <clears throat> where can people reach you, find you? Because you are also an artist. And you have kind of, we, we, we can't really see it uh, clearly, but behind you is one of your paintings. And you do Vaquita art which is wonderful. Where can people find you just, just, to, just to look at what you do? And are you also uh, accepting, st still accepting donations uh, to go into that now $4 million pot to, uh, to go out in November? So where can people find you and uh, where can they donate? Well, let me start with the most important part. The most important <laughs> part is that people go to Vaquita's uh, CPR and it's, you know, spelled just like it sounds, V-A-Q-U-I-T-A-C-P-R.org. Um, that's the place to go to, to uh, both keep track of what's going on. Um, we'll be, you know, posting things there uh, in October as, as things are happening so that people can uh, uh, be aware of the situation. Um, I'm sure that the DiCaprio Foundation will also be following things uh, very closely um, the uh, Sea Shepherds, uh, Operation Milagro, I, you know, they'll be following things very closely. And so um, to me, that's the most important thing is that, that people stay informed um, and uh, keep supporting Mexico to do the right thing, um, which 
I think they sincerely have been trying to do. Um, it's it's not a trivial thing to be fighting this illegal wildlife trade. Right. Um, and and so we have to, you know, keep supporting them there and, you know, now, where people's can, ears definitely make a difference. I would love for people um, to see your art. So where can they find you? They can see uh, all in one word, uh, barbarataylorartist.com. And there's a Vaquita page where you can go and see uh, lots of lovely uh pictures of Vaquitas. Fantastic. Will, can, awesome. will you come back on the show? Will you come back on the show in October or November and keep us updated and uh, and tell us how things are going? Of course, I would love to do that. Well, we would love to have you back. Thank you so much. What an important show. Gray, last thoughts? I just want to say thank you to Barbara for spending her career you know, dedicated to this little panda porpoise. Um, it is important, and uh, we wish you all the best, Barbara. Thank you so much, Greg. Thank you. Thank you both for coming on. Gray, as always, my 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 inspiration, my mentor. Thank you for co-hosting with me today. I so, Absolutely. so appreciate it. Um, you know, you may be tapped again in the future, probably, you know, soon. <laughs> Barbara, once again, okay. um, you are an inspiration to me. And yes, what an incredibly hopeful hour this has been. Uh, very informative. I thank you so much for spending your time with me. And we will talk to you again, okay? Thanks so much, Carolyn. Thank you. Thank you, Barbara. Thank you, Gray. Thank you to Tony. Tony Sweet, who is the handsomest man in radio, and uh, my my producer, one of my producers. Thank you again for being here this morning. Ladies and gents, my listeners, what an important show. Uh, donate, please. As Barbara said, we cannot lose the guardians of the Gulf. It's, it's, it's that simple. Um, you've been given a number of places to go to research and to donate, and I heartily uh, encourage you to do that. And this is Carolyn Hennessy signing off, saying, in everything you do, attempt to cultivate the preservationist heart. We will see you again in two weeks. Thank you. Bye-bye. Something tells me it's all happening at the zoo. I do believe it. I do believe it's true. Giraffes are insincere And the elephants are kindly But they're dumb Orangutans are skeptical Of changes in their cages And the zookeeper is very fond of rum Zebras are reactionaries 